Hey everyone, David Kern here with Close Reads. Just wanted to let you know that this episode is brought to you by GibbsClassical.com, the new online classroom from Joshua Gibbs. In our day, nearly every aspect of our lives has been politicized. And yet there is still a lot of confusion about why conservatives and progressives believe the things that they believe. Both sides tend to have predictable opinions about marriage, guns, taxes, and personal freedom. But what philosophical convictions underwrite these opinions? What does it mean for a man to consistently reason and act according to conservative principles? Registration is now open on GibbsClassical.com for Foundations of Modern Politics, an online class running this fall where Joshua Gibbs will lead students through the texts and ideas that have framed political debate for the last 200 years. By the end of the class, students will be able to diagnose the presuppositions at work in any political debate or news story they encounter. The class will run for 16 weeks and is open to anyone age 15 and up. Classes begin August 28th. Head over to gibbsclassical.com for more information. Again, that's gibbsclassical.com. And with that, here's this week's show. Welcome back to Close Reads. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by Heidi White, Josh Gibbs, and Karen Swallow Pryor. I always wonder what order to do that in. Is it like disrespectful to make someone go last, or is it special to have to list someone's name last? If you're in the middle, does it mean that you got you know, pushed off to the side and people are forgetting about you. Josh, how do you feel about your name being read in the middle? Just like the, th- the middle thesis of an eighth grader's essay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the great conundrum of being the host of a podcast. Whose name do you say first? And will someone be bothered if their name's second? But I'm assuming that neither, none of you really care about that. Heidi, welcome back to the show. How are you? I am doing so great. You, yeah, but you got to have your name first. Karen, how do you feel about having your name third? And how are you otherwise? Well, since my maiden name is toward the end of the alphabet uh, and my last name a little bit, I, I just grew up that way. You know, they, they say that people whose last names begin later at the alphabet um, are more like more prone to heart attacks earlier in life. And they theorize it might be because of all that waiting in school <laughs> for your name to be called. Is that true? Or did you just I make that it. up on the spot? I, no, no I, no, I read it a long time ago, but I don't know okay. if it's true. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, We have been discussing Frankenstein, of course, and this is the last episode of that series, which means that it's the episode in which we answer listener questions. So before we get into that, I want to thank Josh and Karen. Thank you so much for being a part of this series. It's been great having your expertise and your um, love of this book be involved uh, over the last several weeks. So thank you for for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's been great. Um, Josh, are you teaching this again this year? I will teach As, this. Like always? Yeah. Okay. This will be in my, yeah, this will be in my sophomore humanities class. Well, I got to find out, we got to find out if uh, any of the questions today lead to any new uh, approaches to teaching. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, let's dive right in because there are plenty of questions. Um, the third question that we got on the list is about the wedding and we said we were going to, we were going to start there, but I want to start with um, two other questions that just showed up on the list first and I think are worth bringing up because they're relatively quick ones. So Matthew asked, what one word would you use to describe this novel? And Josh, I'd like to start with you there. If you had to describe the novel in one word, what would it be? Describe the novel in one word. Um, That's a great question, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the, I mean, the first word that comes to mind is cautionary, but that's kind of boring. Um, I don't know, you gotta come back to me. Um, <laughs> okay. Heidi, you go I'm, down. I'm going to dodge that question for now. Uh, mine is fraught. Okay. Karen, what about you? Well, I had two that came immediately to mind. I know it's only supposed to be one, but I'm going to give them both anyway. Um, gloomy and dreadful. 
Mm. And Josh, you ready to come back around to you? Did they spark any anything besides cautionary? Um, yeah, I'm. I'm gonna go frustrated. It's a frustrated novel. That's good. What's yours, like Davis? Um, foggy. <laughs> Because uh, Heidi and I have talked about this. I have this weird, like, I associate, like, weather and landscapes with books as I read them. And I can't separate this. And this book is one of, for me, it's like, kind of like Beowulf. It's like huh. fog is how is what my imagination <laughs> produces as I'm reading it. So um, there were, and there were just decidedly one. not enough moors for fog to be the, to be the, the, the word, I suppose. But, okay, uh, Karen, this question is for you. Amy asks, well, she mentions that she would love to hear you talk about why you chose to pair this book with Jane Eyre for your guided editions. She says that she knows that you mentioned agency in Frankenstein last week, and she thinks it's an important concept to both books, but are there any other similarities or differences that people should look for as they read these two books? Hmm. Well, um, well, the, the first to answer why I chose this book to pair with Jane Eyre, to be completely honest, I just, I sat down and I chose the six books that I'm going to write about. And based on my mood, I picked two that I wanted to do last summer and two I wanted to do this summer. <laughs> um, so, the, and, and, but, I, but that, but I also, I guess I am also trying to pair books that are, um, you know, that are sort of different in the sense of uh, most people think of Jane Eyre as a love story and Frankenstein as a horror. You know, I didn't want to do two things that would, um, that would, people might conceive even if incorrectly are this are similar novels. So, but there are, I'm, as I'm writing the introduction to this one, um, having just finished Jane Eyre, there definitely are so many similarities. Um, and agency, agency is definitely a, uh, a big similarity. Um, mm. Just the, the role of the, of the woman, a woman who is in a society that um, is beginning to be modern and give women some, the idea of choices anyway, but yet still restricts them. I think in very different ways, both of these novels are about that. Um, mm. So, yeah. It would have been interesting to have a, have a Heart of Darkness Frankenstein double feature. That would have been a yeah, yeah. Gl- a gloomy pairing, and I guess <laughs> Sense and Sensibility and Jane Eyre. There's your uh, your uh, yeah, your, ro- your of... love story double feature. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Okay, well, this takes us to Tessa's question. She says, "What about the wedding?" Question mark exclamation point. Um, that was the thing we did not get to. We said we were going to save it for this, but what about the wedding is a very general question. So, um. <laughs> that leaves us a lot of room to address this before we dive back into some of the other questions. And we didn't, we, like I said, we didn't get to it last week and it's a pretty memorable scene. Um, and it's a pretty frustrating scene in some ways. Josh mentioned the idea that, um, there are moments in this book that remind him of, you know, the classic horror movie, where people are just making bad decisions and the whole time you're saying, no, don't go down that hall. Don't go down the hall. Don't return to the house in the woods where someone just died, you know? Um, and yet that is in, it's sort of the experience of reading this novel where it feels like perhaps we see or we dread what's coming in ways that um, Frankenstein himself misunderstood. So my question f- it, um 
for you all then about this scene is, is Frankenstein himself blinded by, I don't know, for lack of a better word, maybe selfishness or, you know, his own sort of navel casing um, in a way that keeps him from realizing the danger that he is putting his wife in or is he aware of it and ignoring it? What do you think is more likely there? Heidi, what do you think? Um, I don't know. I think that it's one of the interpretive questions of the novel. It, to me, I mean, we talked a little bit about this a few episodes ago. To me, it beggars belief a little bit that he would leave his wife alone. Um, when he knows the monster is coming, whether or not he believes the monster is coming for him as he claims, or if he's really doesn't know that. Right. So I, I am on team Josh on this, that (laughs) he is at best willfully blind. Um, Because I can't, I don't know. He seems like a smart guy. That's kind of the whole point of the novel. He's super smart. He conquered death and yet he can't figure out that the monster is really coming for his wife on their wedding night and he would leave her alone. That I, I really am. One of the other questions on, which is a really good question is, you know, can we believe, is it possible to believe Frankenstein? Are we just kind of making up all this subtext? Is there an, like a more charitable way to read Victor Frankenstein? Um, and I know we'll get to that question in a bit, but the wedding night scene, it, it does beggar belief that he would leave her alone, in my opinion, without some kind of latent desire to see her destroyed. Josh, go ahead. You lean forward into the microphone. Okay, so what about the wedding night scene? Um, I think I made the claim much earlier in the in the podcast that that everything important in the novel happens twice, and the wedding night scene has already occurred earlier. And it's when the monster approaches the sleeping Justine, and there's a threat of sexual violence in his approach to her, uh, but in the end, he simply frames her for murder. And uh, that scene is revisited on the wedding night where the monster essentially steps in and becomes the real groom. And there's a, a bizarre word choice in this, uh, in this scene. This is a uh, great God. Why did I not then expire? This is when he runs back into the room. Why am I here to relate the destruction of the best hope? and the purest creature of Earth. I'm sorry, I've got the 1831 edition. She was there, lifeless and inanimate, thrown across the bed, her head hanging down and her pale and distorted features half covered by her hair. Everywhere I turn, I see the same figure, her bloodless arms and relaxed form flung by the monster, or flung by the murderer on its bridal beer. Its bridal beer is a very unusual way to describe this. Why is it not the bridal beer? Um, And with that word, it's, it seems to suggest, or Shelley seems to suggest, that the real consummation of the marriage is performed by the monster. But the monster is the one who steps in and actually performs the the consuming act with the bride. 
But this is this is classic horror. This is classic Oedipus Rex horror. Um, sex and death, images of sex and death are overlaid. Uh, and so here we have it suggested that sex is a kind of um, violence uh, because Shelley uses um, murder and the consummation of the marriage interchangeably with this expression, it's bridal beer. And I think this goes back to a lot of themes of the book that, um, that the, problem with, the problem with sex, the problem with sex in marriage or outside of a marriage is that it creates bonds of, of unity between people that ultimately destroy our autonomy. Hmm. And for someone like Victor, uh, there's nothing worse than losing your autonomy. Of course, for, for reasonable people, for healthy people, um, the loss of pure autonomy that occurs in marriage is, is difficult but rewarding at the same time. Uh, but for Victor, it's um, uh, sex creates union between people that destroys freedom. And so he, he's incapable of seeing sex and murder as being different from one another mm. because they're both about a loss of autonomy, a loss of freedom. Mm. It also is hmm. the only moment in the novel in which Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein, touches a woman with anything like desire is after her death. When she's laying prone on the bed and he grasps her with, he throws himself, I can't remember what the wording is, Josh, you've got it open right now, but it's it's an interesting moment, a little bit, not a little bit, I think super creepy. So how he sees her lying prone on the bed in an attitude of what he might expect to see from his bride if she was alive um, and available to him sexually for the first time. And instead she's dead. And that's when he grasps her and embraces her. Yeah. Um, so there is this tension between desire and death and an overlap of desire and death. And he, he, this scene is, uh, this scene is prefigured much earlier, right when the monster is born. And he has this vision the dream. of mm -hmm. holding uh, Elizabeth's dead body, uh, in his arms. Of course, then it's only a dream and, and here it's realized, but um, the wedding night scene does does recall an awful lot. There's a lot of significant scenes that occur in the front half of the book that all kind of collapse on the wedding night scene. Uh, and an awful lot builds up thematically, symbolically, and, and is brought to fulfillment in just these, these few pages between their arrival at the hotel and, um, and Elizabeth's death. Karen, given what Josh is saying then, is the wedding night the climax of the book? Wait, can I go back? Can I answer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go, okay. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's 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 very nuanced. I guess I want to be careful. Um, so, I mean, so going back to like the horror movie example. Um, yes, we mock the horror movie makers for having their characters do these dumb things, like go back into the basement or the or the house where the murder took place. But it's part of the genre. It's 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 the trope that is expected. So I think that, I think you know, Shelley is using the tropes of Gothic novels ingeniously doing a lot more than that, but they are there. Um, and 
they aren't always sophisticated or nuanced and but they are she's using them well and i guess i don't i i want to be careful not to read into the text things that that aren't there i don't think that victor frankenstein necessarily has a psychological desire for his wife to die on their wedding night but that's slightly different than saying death and sex are connected and and the death of the self in in deeply like like an archetypal universal ways that transcend individual psychology if that makes sense like those those things are true and they are there and that's what shelley is revealing um more so than that this particular person had this desire um and i'm not sure that's really making sense i'm just sort of trying to figure out um what i think here um and i do going back to to something we've pointed out a couple times and i i know i talked about last week i mean victor clearly is narcissistic and you know and and strives for autonomy to to the extent that it does kill other people i mean so even in this um yeah two things i want to say i'm sorry so i do i do think that shelly is very careful to set up set it up so that we understand that victor really thinks the monster is going to kill him like she gives like on a literal level of the text victor believes that we're supposed to understand that as well um and so he because he says in um I mean, I talked earlier about the misdirection when he, when the monster makes the threat and he says a few paragraphs into this chapter, I passed an hour in the state of mind when suddenly I reflected how dreadful the combat, which I momentarily expected would be to my wife. And I earnestly entreated her to retire. So he, he thinks that he's going to battle with the monster and he doesn't want Elizabeth to see it. I know he's completely wrong and Shelley knows this and we know this, but on a literal plot level, this is what the character thinks. And so he wants to protect Elizabeth from seeing this deadly battle where he might lose his life. That, that's plausible. I mean, she, it may not be expert, but this is the plot she gives us that Victor thinks he's going to have this battle and he doesn't want Elizabeth to see it. So he puts her, you know, away. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so I think that's, and then, oh, then the narcissism after he sees her, right after when, uh, what Josh just read, right after it's bridal beer, he says, could I behold this and live? So he sees his dead wife and his first thought is, oh, can I live through this? You know, so it, he really is all about him and that hasn't changed, but being so focused on himself is what makes him blind to the danger that Elizabeth is in. Right. So is the monster then, he's just outsmarting Frankenstein? Or is he recognizing that, I mean, we're always, is the idea all along that not to actually go after Frankenstein, but to go after everyone around Frankenstein? Oh, I think the monster knew that all along. And even when he makes the threat, I'll be with you on your wedding night, he means it one way and Victor interprets it another way. Um, And as Josh said, you know, the scene repeats itself throughout, even the scene where Victor tears apart the female creature. You know, that's a mm-hmm. foreshadowing of this event as well. Well, let's, does anyone want to add anything else? Because we do have plenty of questions to get to. Is, 
do we, if you want to, no, okay. Okay, here's one from Hannah. She mentions that she finds it interesting that there are no mothers in this story. Not even the DeLacy family or Safi's family has a mother present. And one of the reasons Victor kills the female monster is because she might become a mother. Frankenstein tries to be a sort of mother himself by creating the monster, but there aren't any true mothers. So can you talk about the significance of that? And then she says, why is Margaret the only exception? We'll go back to you, Karen, here. Have you thought about this this idea of the absence of mothers and then why Margaret seems to be the only exception? Yeah. Um, so a major part of my introduction is kind of going through the theme, the major themes of the work. And I, I got tweeted last night and uh, that like this novel has more major themes than any other I know of. <laughs> the list is so long. But uh, motherless is, motherlessness is actually one of the themes that I talk about. Um, you know, it's hard to say which is the central theme, but motherlessness is a really prevalent theme in this novel. And of course, it's a theme in Mary Shelley's life, right? She lived a life of motherlessness. Um, and it's, it's just crucially important. Um, obviously, Frankenstein tries to create life apart from a mother without a mother. Um, and yeah, so, and, and Victor's mother dies. The DeLacy's family has no mother. This whole novel is about motherlessness. In, in literal ways and metaphysical ways. Josh, did you want to add something? Um, I was just going to add that, um, that there's not many mothers, but, but Caroline Buford is a mother and that she plays an important, albeit very small role. I think that she's in and out of the book in about 15 pages. Um, but, uh, but in the same way, Maybe I don't know that I thought I don't know that I want to make bi- biographical ties. I mean, Mary Shelley's mother dies when she's very young. Uh, Caroline dies when her children are very young. But um, maybe like Mary Wollstonecraft, Caroline Buford casts a long shadow. Um, Victor comes to think of his youth as this idyllic thing because maybe his mother was still alive. Um, in fact, it might be the fact that his mother was alive when he was very young that that. Um, helps create this ideal uh, of youth that he presents later on. Um, but at the same time, uh, Caroline Buford is also uh, mistreated. Like, I, I don't like her treatment in this book. She's not treated um, as an equal in her marriage. She's not treated as a, as a fully autonomous person. Uh, her husband treats her like a like a precious child, like a fairy child that has to uh, be sheltered from anything difficult in the world. And he takes her to live miles away from Geneva so that no one can uh, pry into their lives and tell her, hey, it's really weird that your husband's like twice as old as you are and he treats you like a child. Um, so, so that's the, Caroline's the one mother in the whole story, um, kind of. And, uh, and she enters and she exits very quickly. She doesn't leave a big impression in terms of the plot of the novel, but as the one mother figure uh, in the book, she's not, she's not ever really granted real autonomy. She's, um, she's, she marries young and, um, and is treated like a child for her whole life. So, I mean, the, the only mother in this book seems very, seems very kind, seems very sweet, uh, but also lives a, an, you know, sexually speaking, she has an unorthodox relationship with her husband. Um, and so, I don't know, you, you could read all kinds of problems tumbling out of, 
Alphonse and Caroline's problematic marriage. Yeah, the the absence once she's gone, her absence looms over the rest of the novel. Um, it feels like I, there was a couple times when I felt like he was referring back to her, I, and I, I meant to make note of those. But it seems like he's, you know, he's even acknowledging his own loss there, and the, and the way that that impacted him. Uh, maybe it's it's almost like it um, limited his uh, his um, growth. I guess uh, it's like in some ways he was where he was with the moment when she died throughout the rest of his life. Heidi, do you want to add to this? Or should we move on to the next one? Okay. Um, another question about family. Wendy says, I was intrigued by the discussion of Frankenstein's dysfunctional family. She says, I tend to read books at face value. So when uh, he said his family was a wonderful one and that he wanted to marry Elizabeth, I believed it. How did you get from the story, the dysfunction of the family? And, so, and then she says, what are the tips for reading future books to be able to pull things and ideas that may not be so obvious or that actually contradict what the narrator says. I think that last bit there is, I mean, we've, we've talked about where the dysfunction, the evidence of the dysfunction so far. So I think that last bit is particularly worth, um, worth addressing. So I'll say it again. What are the tips for reading future books to be able to pull things and ideas that may not be so obvious or that contradict what the narrator says? Um, Karen, do you want to take this first and we'll go around and see if you, you, maybe each of you have a tip or something that you can look for? Sure. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. And as I've said on previous episodes, I you know we have to be careful not to read things anachronistically and to talk about you know an unreliable narrator before such a thing was a thing. Although people can you know I mean we can have one without Shelley realizing that that's mm-hmm. what she's doing. Um, and I think that's partly what's going on here. I think this is partly what makes this novel so great is that Shelley is as a genius is doing things in this novel far beyond probably what she intended. Not that we necessarily know all of that. Um, but, um, so again, so the historical context makes sense. If we understand a novel sort of in its place and don't expect it to do things, it's not supposed to do because those things hadn't been invented or developed yet or in development. Uh, apart from that, even just the form itself, this is something I'll talk about a lot in my introduction is that the form with these layers and layers that we've talked about, the frame narrative, all of the different perspectives narrating the same story from their point of view or different parts of the story, that is a clue right away. We're not getting one univocal narrator kind of giving the world according to the narrator. Uh, We're getting a lot of different perspectives. So that is requiring us as readers to examine each different story and perspective and to call the other competing ones into question. Um, so really it is about kind of interpreting a statement or an assertion from a character um, in the context of the, of the whole book and what the whole book is doing is kind of the short answer. Hmm. Uh, Josh, I'll go to you next. We'll just go around the screen the way I see it here. Although Heidi, you didn't get to talk last time, so <laughs> make sure you have some time too. So the, the question was, how do we know when to trust the novel? When do we when is it fair for our suspicions to be raised? Um, Was that the essence of the question? Yeah. Yeah. And what are, you know, what are some tips for things to look for in future books? Okay. You know, so um, tips on things to look for in future books. I don't know that I have any tips on things to look for, but I would say that when you're looking at classic literature, listening to classical music, 
looking at um, you know the paintings of Rembrandt, Caravaggio, etc., that you're best off assuming intentionality. And I tell this to my students all the time: assume intentionality. Uh, if something strikes you when you're looking at a classic work of art, um, if something piques your interest when reading a novel and you're going along and you notice some connection and you say, wow, it's kind of funny that this, is, this happens in chapter two and this other thing happens in chapter four, I wonder if they're connected. It's best to assume intentionality. And if there's some, um, if there's some uh, you know, thematic development in a book that you think is occurring, you know, with the color red, the color green, with, um, you know, golden cups, silver chairs, whatever. Yes, assume that it is intentional. And uh, classic literature all, often plays very delicately on the intellect. It doesn't, it doesn't knock you over. It's not the maze runner. It's not weapons-grade entertainment. You've got to be very quiet and still in order for classic literature to do its work on you. And so if you can get yourself in that frame like of mind one. and you start to notice things, you should assume that you're supposed to notice them. And that's not always true. And, and it's possible to overread a book. But uh, in this day and age, you know, in the age of, you know, nuclear war and Jackson Pollock and Game of Thrones, I think that under-reading books is far more of a temptation than over-reading books. Um, so, so I would say... Uh, that, you know, in the future, tips for reading great literature. Um, assume intentionality. Assume that you are meant to find things that you're finding and allow the things that you find to guide the way that you look for other things. Like, assuming intentionality will allow you to see connections between themes and characters and, and images and so forth and allow the novel to teach you how to read it by... Uh, building off of the things that you begin to notice uh, about 50 pages in and assume that you were supposed to notice those things. Hmm. Heidi, your turn. I'm, I'm going to say exactly what was just said, just in a different way. I, <laughs> I once heard a, a speaker compare a work of literature to walking into a great cathedral like if you if if you've toured a cathedral, been to any of the great cathedrals, you can't take the whole thing in on one sitting. Like you can't walk in and look around and walk out and assume you saw the cathedral. Like it's it's bigger than it's bigger than me. There's there's something transcendent about the experience of being in a Gothic cathedral that takes it it takes more than one time to take it in. And and great literature is like that. You read so you can read Frankenstein completely at face value, and it is still a great novel. You can believe everything Victor Frankenstein says, everything he claims. You could give him the benefit of the doubt. You can think his family was great. You can, you can read it without subtext, and it's still a great novel. And then you read it again, and you take it in, edit, and you start to ask oh, I wonder if his family was as great as he claims. I wonder if he's sincere here. And and that's kind of the conversation that the four of us have been having. And, and that, I think, is part of being a close reader, part of being somebody who's paying attention. But the only way you get there is if you read it for the first time, right? And And that is... 
a good thing to do and a worthy thing to do and the correct and right starting place. And so when you first walk into a cathedral, you walk around, you look at it and you're like, oh, this is beautiful. Then you come back and then you learn a little bit more about it and you take it in a little deeper and you sit at the altar and pray because you're not a tourist anymore, right? And and that is, I think, what what we're doing on the podcast is... Um, reading within community and saying, let's get to the point when we're sitting and praying at the altar. And, um, but you have to just do the tour the first time. So that is a worthy starting place. And then you can start to go a little deeper using those things that, that Josh talked about. I think one practical tip is when a character in a novel claims something and then acts differently than their claim, pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. And start asking questions about that. As Josh said, notice it and go, oh, so do I, what do I think about that? And, um, and then sometimes even, you're not always going to come to the same conclusion as other really thoughtful, close readers. You know, you can say, as Karen says, maybe he really didn't think that the monster was coming for Elizabeth. Maybe he didn't know. Maybe it wasn't like the monster's doing his secret bidding and we're in this, some psychological, you know, deep muck. Maybe it's just that he really didn't know. And then Josh might say, no, I really think he did. And then you're having a conversation about the book. And one of you isn't right or wrong. It's just, that's what great literature does is it brings out those conversations um, about a particular story or novel. So that's that's close reading. Um, and, and so I think that gap between the claim of a character and the action of a character, that's one place to start asking questions. And when you see those dissonances in a novel, that's the interpretive power of reading. Yeah. So, okay, I want to, there's a, there's a series of questions that came that were related to this because we had, oh, I don't know, a handful of people. I could count them up, but that would take time. Okay, so there's a handful of people here who say, that they've spent the entire book feeling like they weren't reading the same book as we were, which I thought was interesting. So, um, and then you had this smattering of people saying, yeah, I felt the same way. Um, and, at the, and it was tied particularly to this idea that, that we're not supposed to um, trust what, what, uh, what, what we're getting on face value. And so I'm wondering if, if that means that we need to... Um, if that means we need to go back and just clarify why, you know, in a couple in a couple of reasons for people to go back as they reread it, clarify why we're reading it in that way. And a couple of the comments said it felt like we were saying because of Mary Shelley's life, we weren't taking Frankenstein's taking Frankenstein for his word. You know, we weren't trusting him because, and we were bringing in the, the author's biographical stuff, bringing it into that. Um, do we want to, do we want to just summarize like Josh, for example, this was, this is something you were talking about at length. Do you want to summarize a couple things specifically for people to look back? I mean, you, you, you know, you're gonna have a couple minutes to do this. So if someone's going back and rereading it and they're thinking about some of the things that you said, can you just summarize a couple of things to look for? You know, I know we've been talking about it, but I think it seems like there was enough confusion that we should at least go back and recapitulate. <laughs> sure. So this might be one of those um, reading strategies that you shouldn't overthink. If you've got um, a third person story, you should trust pretty much everything that's said. A third person narrator does not invite any sort of skepticism whatsoever. A first person narrator does. 
And in the same way that if you sit down and have a conversation with someone who is a troubled individual and whose life has panned out in a miserable and unfortunate way, and this person goes back and forth between blaming everyone else and blaming themselves and seems completely inca incapable of rendering real and final judgment on who's responsible for their misery, you might begin to become skeptical of some things that they say. So a third person narrator doesn't invite skepticism. That's not the mode of a third person narrator. But a first person narrator has an incentive to lie. I have an incentive to lie. When I lie to people, I have an incentive to do so. I get something out of it. They think higher of me. They think better of me. And you have to use your whole life to interpret literature. Like, don't separate your life from literature. Allow literature and your life to, to play against one another and to work with one another and to inform one another. And if you've ever lied to anybody and if you've ever caught somebody else in a lie and you've realized that people have incentive for lying and you do too, well, the same is true of characters in books. Um, so especially when the character presents himself uh, in an inconsistent sort of way, that right there is an invitation to be a little skeptical of the things that they say. Hmm. So um, in terms of deciding what you should or should not believe in a novel, I don't know that that's it. I don't know that we... Uh, I don't know that being skeptical of what a narrator says is choosing your own adventure in a novel. I think it's just common sense that sometimes people lie. And you can kind of figure out that they're lying uh, by inconsistencies in what they say. So, um, you know, for my money, Victor Frankenstein just does not give a consistent picture of himself. And he makes outrageous claims about things that he has and has not said. And those claims seem to be winks from the narrator that I can't trust everything that he says, and that the character, part of the character, is his own delusion. Um, and because the character is presented first person, you know, you have to kind of figure out where the corners of the character are to pick it up, to pick up Victor's personality. But I think that there's enough in the book that, that helps us see those things when they come along. Um, that we can't avoid them because they're obvious enough. Karen, we got a question here that I want to, um, that I want to ask you. It's related to this. Um, it comes from Brenda. And then, uh, there's another person here. See, I can't find it right now, but there's another person here who has a similar question. So Brenda puts it like this. This was my second time reading the book. And in this reading, I saw so much more how Victor telling the story to Walton was making sure it was told in the way that he wanted it perceived, especially given that he edited Walton's notes. So the first time we hear the monster speak without it being shared through Victor's filter, it is after Victor is dead. Do you think there is anything significant, significantly different between the monster's final words and the words according to Victor? And this other questioner put it something like, um, is, there any, is there any difference between the monster's voice at the end after Victor's death and his voice that's depicted by Victor. Is the monster the same? And if so, does that then challenge Victor's credibility? So on the one hand, we've got the Victor, we've got the monster that Victor has described through the whole book, and then we get the monster that is just from Walton's perspective in his letters to his sister. Are there any differences? And does that strain, does that apply to what Josh is saying about how Victor is not credible? 
Right. I mean, that's a really good question. And I haven't actually thought about it. I'm going to look at it and think about it. Um, but I think, I think what Josh just said um, applies so well. It's, I, I really like what he said um, because, because if we actually treat the characters and narrators, if we treat a narrator like we treat a real person sitting down and talking to us, as Josh said, um, we have to think about it critically. We have to take the whole context in. How much do we know them? Does their life reflect what they're saying? And, and so forth. And, and when applied to a novel like this, the, and, and I also like what Josh said earlier about assume it's intentional. Um, and there may be some different meanings of intention because in a way, if we're doing what, what that is to just pay attention to what the character says and how trustworthy it is. It almost doesn't matter what the author's intention is. Um, I, it does matter, but we don't have to know that because we are just, we can judge what the author has given us through the character and the character's story. Um, and so I think it's a great thing. To, I'll have to go back and look at the monster's presentation of himself compared to Victor's presentation of, of the monster. Um, and I would expect there to be differences just because, you know, when someone else talks about you, uh, it's different from when you present yourself. So, um, that is a great example of the kind of tips that we're talking about for, um, for close reading and for belief of, of a character's story. Hi there, Josh. Do you want to jump on that? Do you, do you have anything to add about the differences between the two months, the two versions of the monster? So, um, I, love this question this is such a great question whoever asked this question should be uh, should be asking more questions like it uh, <laughs> having said that um and and maybe my appreciation of this question is a little selfish too because i remember the first time that th this occurred to me that we have in the last couple pages of the book we have the uh, unedited thoughts or unedited speech of the monster not run through victor's filter um, and I, I, I realized that or somebody, a student presented that idea a, a few years ago, and I've read the book a few times with that in mind. And I've got to say that I don't think the monster's voice is inconsistent um, with the way that Victor presents him, that, that the couple pages that he gets back and forth with Robert Walton are more or less consistent with the way that the monster has been presented up until that point. And I, having read it, you know, four or five times since then, I just don't notice that big of a difference. It hmm. seems consistent or consistent enough, given that there's been some change in the monster's character and his personality sure. in the few years between, well, uh, the few months or few years between the last time he encountered Victor and then this, um, the, this brief conversation on the ship. Anyway, while I think it's a great question, having pursued that that reading or that that query a couple times, I just don't notice anything substantially different. I'm, there's nothing that um, arouses my suspicion in Robert Walton's conversation with the monster. Heidi, did you want to add anything? I, I don't have anything to add to that. I completely agree with Josh because I've, I, I actually wrote a paper about this in college and I couldn't, I, the monster is remarkably consistent. He's by far, and we've talked about this, the most articulate speaker. And there's something about his uh, narration of his own life that inspires belief in the reader. And which is curious considering that he is the monster, that he is the, he's the id, he's the, the um the 
darkest parts of Victor and of the reader and of the story. And yet he's in some ways the one who actually tells the truth, doesn't justify himself, um, but explains himself, right? And then we can, we judge him by that. We, we, we condemn him for his actions and some people are sympathetic to him or not sympathetic to the monster, but there's something believable about his narration of himself, his inner life and his actions. That's not the same as it is with Victor. Okay. So, okay. So what are we to make then? We have this character who Frankenstein himself is, it seems untrustworthy, right? But then he has presented the monster in a way that seems like it's trustworthy. So then what are we to make of that? Right. I mean, I think that's one of the interpret to talk about the major themes as Karen's talking about. That's one of the interpretive questions of the book. What do we make of this? Who is the monster? If they're both the monster, what qualities make Victor monstrous and the monster monstrous? And are why are we sympathetically drawn to one or the other? Um, I, I think that that's you know, somebody asked the question, I don't remember who it was, but did Mary Shelley, again, we're back to the biographical criticism, right? Did Mary Shelley write herself into the monster? And I think that's that, yeah, what's there was a so question about loneliness. About this, about this novel is that it invites biographical criticism for anybody who knows anything about Mary Shelley's life. And you can read it without knowing anything about Mary Shelley. You don't have to. You don't have to have that specialized knowledge. It's a great novel. It stands on its own. But once you know that, you do start asking the question, why did this woman give this voice to this monster? And I, and I think that that what are we to make of it question is one of... I mean, I don't want to answer it outright on the Q&A because I think it's one of the interpretive questions of this novel. Are you saying you're leaving it to Karen for her introduction? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. Can I? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That introduction is only, by the way, 5,000 words, which is incredibly <laughs> short. So, <laughs> that is short. Um, but the, hopefully I can get at some of this in the discussion question. But just to... Uh, so again, I, I'm still trying to find words to articulate this. So I'll give an give an example. There's a novel that I often teach um, by Daniel Defoe, Mal Flanders, published in 1722. It's not considered most. It's really not considered a novel. It's sort of a pre-novel. It's one of the works that led to the to the novel. Um, it's very rough. It's very um, because the novel hadn't developed, um, and so. Daniel Defoe basically writes a first-person account of a woman who lives a really rough life, um, <laughs> to put it briefly, and you know, and, and she's she's a prostitute. She's married several times. She has babies and forgets about them and drops them off or whatever. And and so one of the things that stu you know, students will often bring up is they will say. Um, you know, oh, sh this woman, she doesn't even care about her children. She just leaves them. There's no name or whatever. And so I will always use that as an example to say, so is that something that the author, is he showing us a flaw in this person's character? Or is Daniel Defoe in 1722, a man who is a journalist, just not that skilled in presenting a woman's perspective, a mother's perspective, because it's, per I think we have to look at the skill level of the writer too. And so I think what I'm 
kind of been pushing all along here is that I don't see Mary Shelley as doing some of the things that were in the text as an artist that we in the 21st century want to see. I think she was, I think the novel was rough. It was her first one. She was 18 years old. She wrote a masterpiece, but I think that there are some flaws and some inconsistencies that are of the art itself, not her intending to, and it still can happen, but it's not like she was trying to, to, um, to show us this character who, um, who, yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, it, it does happen, but I, I'm not convinced it's because she was trying to do that is what I'm saying. And I don't remember now how this relates to the question that we were talking about, but hopefully it's helpful. Well, we have a lot of questions, so we should probably move on. Um, <laughs> okay. Nicole asks, this is, I like, is Frankenstein an abominable snowman origin story? Does anybody know anything about this? <laughs> I don't, I, the Wait, best what part was the is, question? is Frankenstein an abominable snowman origin story? Which I guess, is, that's because the abominable snowman gets created, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't I tell if the question is tongue in cheek. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. But monster stories are, uh, I mean, they're, they're just, they're so compelling. It's, um, there's been monster stories as long as there have been stories. And, but the Frankenstein story has been retold uh, many, many times. The idea of a creator making a monster and then the monster, um, you know, representing a part of him or kind of the darkness of the human story. And then, you know, we, we see that all the time from like Breaking Bad to, uh, you know, the Avengers, right? It's, it's a story, the idea of, of a creator making a monster and then the monster being bigger than him uh, or her is, is part of the literary exploration of what it means to be fallen as a human. Um, and the monster becomes some kind of objective correlative to that, um, to the fall. And um, that, so yeah, sure. The bomb, the, <laughs> you know. It's the same tradition. Uh, sure. Yeah, it's the same tradition. It's the same story. Josh, have there been any good movie adaptations of this work? And do you have any thoughts about why there have been so many bad ones? Oh, there's been a lot of bad ones. I mean, most of them are bad. Um, I've seen a couple. Uh, and it, I don't know, it seems like most of the most of the filmmakers who want to tackle the story don't really have a whole lot of interest in a faithful interpretation of the novel. I mean, they're willing to skim the most obvious... Um, aspects of the the plot off the top and rearrange them however it seems fitting i know the one the one that had de niro as the monster back in 1992 i think has robert walton in it um and it might be one of the only cinematic versions that that has walton in it um but even that one's not very good uh even even that um even that 90, I forget it's 91 or 92. It, it feels like an early 90s period piece. It's very, very overblown. Um, it's not terribly subtle. Uh, the budget's too big. It, it gets carried away with itself. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know that there's a great 
movie version of Frankenstein. Is it unfilmable? Uh, no, it's just that the people who want to do it don't want to do it well. Um, uh, the, the kind of, for whatever reason, the people the people in Hollywood who are attracted to the story all all seem like knuckleheads. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Okay, here's a question from Camille. Uh, she says, when discussing this book with teens, how much do you generally get into the life of the author, which of course seems so relevant, but is also obviously very troubled and rather scandalous. I see how it informs her writing in the story, but I'm not sure if I want to go down that rabbit trail. I, so that's the end of the question. I'm assuming this is going to vary from classroom to classroom, group of students to group of students and teacher to teacher. But well, Josh, I mean, you do this, so I'll start with yeah. you. Even I just asked you the last question, but what are, you thought, what are your thoughts on this? I teach this novel to sophomores and the, I spend two days before we even crack the book covering Mary Shelley's biography. And um, I normally get down into the nitty gritty of her life, um, sexual foibles and all. Uh, I don't, I don't get detailed, but I mean, I don't have a lot of details at my disposal. But I, I mean, I do tell my students, she sleeps with this guy, she wants to sleep with that guy, this guy wants to sleep with her and her sister, and so on and so forth, which are all details that can be found in her, in her journals and in the journals of her uh, relatives. So um, I tell parents before covering the novel that there's a lot of frank conversations about um, sexual temptation and sexual perversion and deviance that go on in the novel. Um, but having told them that, I mean, uh, I don't know, I don't know what the purpose of this novel is in a, in a high school classroom. If you're not going to talk about temptations to sexual deviance and perversion, that is what this novel is about. It was born out of that experience. Um, it's a, it's a barely veiled account of sexual deviance and perversion um, so if, if you're going to teach this to high school students, um, you're going to have to be teaching them about the virtue of chastity through this story. And um, uh, of course, I've written about this before. Um, I mean, if you lust is one of the only sins that teenage boys actually feel guilty about. Like they're willing to they're willing to let lying and stealing and cheating go. But lust really gets after their conscience and they feel guilty about it and they feel awful about it. Uh, but lust is also the only sin that high school teachers feel really squeamish about talking about, um, which means that uh, teenage boys are often uh, baffled by how little their teachers talk about the sins and temptations that they actually care about. Their teachers are polishing brass in the Titanic while their souls are, are you know, singing to the bottom of the ocean because no one will talk with them about the one sin that they really are troubled by. Uh, and Frankenstein is absolutely the book to use to talk about the temptation to lust. And it's absolutely the book to use to talk about the, the virtue of chastity. Hmm. Karen, I want to ask you this next question that is 
Um, it's it's a it's of a similar bent at least. Katie says this is a very teacherly question, and it pales in comparison with the excellent questions asked already. But I'm wondering how helpful it would be to read one or all of Shelley's inspirations, and she lists Paradise Lost, Prometheus, The Run of the Ancient Mariner, and then she also mentions Rousseau before reading this novel. Obviously, I think you can read Frankenstein on its own, but I'm always curious about those specific lenses that we also could use to read the books. So, what would be your advice for for people with those you know in those um those inspirations for Shelley yeah I mean I've never taught the book that way just because of the way our curriculum is set up but I think that would be ideal and excellent um you know this book gets taught in English novel classes which is where I teach it women's literature classes romantic period classes um, but none of those, you know, so the, those works like, you'd have to almost create a, a class that, um, doesn't fit in with what is, you know, a sort of special creation, <laughs> sorry, bad pun, um, because Paradise Lost and, well, it is usually taught in a different context. Um, you could do the right. Promethean myths as well. I think that would, that would be, a, that would actually be a great course. Um, so that that's a great idea, but it, it it's as far as I know, rarely done that way. Heidi, this is a question from Anne. She says, I know the role of women in the novel has been talked about on the podcast. Um, a lot on the podcast, but why did Mary make the decision to have all the main characters be men? And is there significance in the fact that all of this is ultimately being told to a woman, Walton's sister? Is there any significance in that? Do you think? I think that's, a, a very, very insightful question slash observation. Um, the, you know, as as our listeners know, I keep harping on this issue of, of Frank Victor Frankenstein and his disordered relationships with and perceptions of women. Um, and I think for the time period, it would be um, just, there's no novels written about women here at this particular time period. Mall Flanders is an example, but um, this isn't, it isn't like normal for a woman to write a story about from, from the perspective of women, it, they would have been writing about men. So I think there's a little bit of just that historical kind of uh, context there. And this is a novel about uh, we keep saying this is a novel about something, right? Which goes to that major themes question again. But this, it's true. This is a novel about a man with a disordered experience, relation, series of relationships, perspective on women and the role of women biologically. He's talking about becoming some kind of creepy, impious mother through what he's doing. And so the only person who can do that is a man. Um, so just by nature of the story itself, it has to be about men and there has to be some kind of explanation and exploration of that in his other relationships to give a context for what he's trying to do, which goes to the earlier question that we were talking about with um, uh, going beyond kind of beneath the surface of his statements about his family, about the women in his life. Um, that's another reason to do so because he's taking on the role of like this diabolical inverted mother. Um, so you have to ask the question, you have to ask the question, why is he doing this? Um, why, why not just get married and have children like a normal person? <laughs> so, um, uh, so, I think that 
this particular question is um, really insightful and starts a conversation about Victor Frankenstein. And it's another way to go to the deeper level um, that's explored beneath the surface that's in the subtext that's under the surface of the, the deep waters of this particular novel. Uh, Karen, um, Sarah says that Josh Gibbs isn't on Facebook, so she wants someone to please tease him about loving the tragically romantic ending. And she says that's very Anne Shirley of him. So Karen, would you please tease Josh for, for like that or for, on Sarah's behalf? Wait, te- tease Josh for what? For the romantic ending? For loving the re- tragically the- romantic ending was his words. <laughs> oh, that's very tease-worthy. Um, yeah, so I... I, I yeah. <laughs> You're <laughs> officially teased. But uh, uh, Carolyn asks, which of Victor's bad qualities do you find most monstrous? I'd love to hear um, from each of you on that. So, Josh, let's start with you. <laughs> Um, which of Victor's bad qualities do you find most monstrous? She says you alternately, at what point do you consider him to become monstrous? Uh, which is, you know, another way of asking it. So you can take that either of those ways. Um, Victor's a misanthrope. I think that's his most horrific quality. He just hates people. He doesn't like human beings. Um, he He doesn't like human beings the way that, I don't know, some people don't like... I don't know, like tomatoes or something <laughs> like that. Like he's just he's just repulsed <laughs> by people, um, which which is I, I think deeply. I think that's his most disturbing um, personality characteristic that that he doesn't like the most intriguing thing in the world. <laughs> What's better than people? What's more interesting than people? Uh, I can see not liking tomatoes. You know, it's a texture thing or whatever. But not liking people, not liking the the summit of God's creation, not liking the greatest consolation uh, in this life against the struggles and the, and, and the misery of of living in a fallen world uh, is his most um, perverse characteristic. Hmm. Uh, Heidi, your turn to answer the question. Which of Victor's bad qualities do you find most monstrous? Uh, so I think that Josh is right, objectively speaking. For me, personally speaking, the thing that I find the most disturbing about Victor Frankenstein is that he uh, it lies to himself and others. Like he is so intent on um, justifying himself that he doesn't he doesn't attempt to know himself. He's deceitful with himself and with others. And I find that the most monstrous because to Josh's point, to, to love others requires a posture of humility towards your own sin and the ability to know and know your sin and repent of it. And that is the most disturbing and distressing thing to me about him is that his, his utter refusal to know himself truly and repent. And Karen, what about you? Well, I've brought it up a few times, so I'll, I guess I'll go with his narcissism. Um, and of course, mm-hmm. none of these things really can be separated from one another, but right. he's right. just so self-centered, which is a lack of humility um, and also a lack of, of, of thinking of others uh, as much as, if not more than yourself. So um, yeah, that would be his biggest flaw to me. Mary Jo asked a question that I found really interesting and I don't know if we can really answer it, but I did want to share it at least for 
people to think about. She says, the discussion about justice, which we had in previous episode, made me wonder, is the monster truly human? Does he have an eternal soul? And if he does, how did he get it? She said she started thinking about how he was made up of body parts from a lot of different humans with different souls, but he didn't get their souls from their body parts. That led me to ponder the thought experiment about the ship of Theseus that gradually has all its boards replaced over time and whether it's still the same ship. And then I figured I'd better concentrate on driving instead of going any deeper into such questions. <laughs> but I think it's, a, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting question. So given, given all the... But the places that his parts come from, does he have an eternal soul? And if he does, how did he get it? And I'm, I'd be willing to wager that Josh Gibbs has thoughts on this. Um, I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Should have bet I, my house on it. I, I don't know that my, I don't know that my thoughts are too profound, but um, I will say that uh, whenever you've got a story that has some quasi human figure in it, some debatably human figure, whether it's David the robot and Steven Spielberg's AI, whether it's Pinocchio, any kind of um, humanoid figure. And mm -hmm. there's some debate within the world of the story about whether this thing is really human. The answer is always yes. <laughs> You're better off assuming that a, that a debatably human character is entirely human. So um, I, I think that we often do, we often assume that they're human and then work ourselves around to these debates about whether they're human later on. So um, one of my favorite movies of all time, um, Steven Spielberg's AI, makes no sense at all if you actually are <laughs> unsure about whether David is a real human throughout the story. Uh, if, if David is just um, uh, a Coke can with a face, the movie doesn't make any sense. So you, I, the movie only makes sense. The story only makes sense. Your response, your deep emotional response to the story only makes sense if you assume that he's human. Pinocchio only makes sense if you assume that he's human from the start and that he's, that he's seeking out not humanity, but, but the fulfillment of his humanity. Pinocchio is a story about a boy uh, who doesn't want to be human. He wants to be good. Um, and, and, and that's his, that's his whole journey. And that's, um, David's story in AI is, is not about becoming human. It's about, um, it's about reconciling with his mother. I mean, all, all these stories are, are about human beings. So, um, so as for the question, again, I, I think you're right, David, it's really hard. I don't know how you're going to prove in a court of law. I don't know how you're going to prove in the Hague that Frankenstein's monster has a soul and that it entered into his body at this point. But I think within, within any story, with a debatably human character, you just assume that they're human and, and, and work from there. Um, it, it strikes me though that there are stories where, I mean, well, I guess it's different. I was thinking about movies where like people are, they, ha they, they, they accept the character themselves, accept something that's not real as real. And then everybody else around them knows that it's not real. Like I'm thinking like Lars and the real girl or something like that, where he thinks that he's actually made friends with some, a, a, you know, not, not human thing. Um, and well, th I mean, this is a real ethical issue we're facing. Um, I mean, not just in I, AI, but chimeras, chimeras that are made, you know, they're injecting animal tissue, human tissue into animals and so forth. Um, uh, I was asked to write a, a contribute to a scholarly article for a journal 
presenting different religious views on this about 10 years ago. So we don't hear a lot about it, but it's actually happening in laboratories. Um, and, and the status of these creatures that are made up of human and animal cells is still, you know, still kind of gray, according to some. Um, so I think Josh's answer is great. Like we should, well, first of all, you know, whether we should be doing these things is another question, but having done it, um, yeah, err on the side of being human. Um, Brenda, Brenda, I scrolled down to see if just want to make sure that we didn't miss anybody at the bottom, but she says, there's no way this question Q and a episode will get to this comment, but I'm posting it anyway. She says, both times I've read this book, there is a passage in chapter three that just really strikes me as Victor begins work on his creation. He says, quote, as the minuteness of the parts formed a great hindrance to my speed, I resolved contrary to my first intention to make the being of gigantic stature. That is to say about eight feet in height and proportionately large. End quote. So then Brenda goes on. Victor is in such a hurry and so consumed with his goals that he refuses to take the time necessary to, of doing the painstaking work to create something beautiful. This passage has come back to me many times, but I have not been able to put together a cohesive judgment about it. It's not as if I think that he, that if he had been made with, made the, made the creation with great care, then everything would have been just fine. But she says she'd love to hear other people's thoughts on this. So I'd like to take that last thing she says, where she says, it's not as if I think that he, if he had made the creation with great care, then everything would have been just fine. But I'd like to know, had he taken, time, taken his time and attempted to truly cared about making something beautiful, would everything have been maybe not just fine, but better off? Is the fact that he, I guess another way of putting it in is, is the fact that he didn't care about that proof of everything of, of everything else that came or is that why everything else came after that? And, and is it just proof of his own Frankenstein's own problems? Maybe I asked a question that's a thesis actually. I just think this is so brilliant, like just so, so brilliant. This idea of goodness, truth and beauty. And I, I never thought of until I read this comment I just want to like clap. I'm clapping in my microphone. This is a incredibly insightful take on on Frankenstein and on the monster. That the missing piece of beauty um, is is deterministic to the monster's fate, um, and that's I I I really I read that I read the comments and. As soon as she said in the first line, I don't think they'll get to this. I'm like, David's going to get to it. I know it. Yeah. So, um, if you want to get just, on the show, just, I just, threat, just you know, tell me not to put you on the show. Yeah. <laughs> so I just want to affirm that comment and, and, and let you know that that truly sparked, has sparked thoughts. So I'd love to hear from, from Josh and Karen on their response to this. Which of you wants to go first or should we just, should we just say, this is a great question and we have to think about it for the rest of our lives? It is a great question. Um, and I think it goes back to what I just said. It's really more about, I think this, this is a literal sort of uh, representation of the question we should be asking, which is, should we do something, not just can we do something? And so by not even bothering to create something that is beautiful. I mean, that, that question, that 
the whole question is precluded. So I'm not sure. I'm sure I'm not answering the question. It's a great question. Um, and I think the novel is answering it in, in almost like a literal way that, um, that, that this literal creation of this monster in a way that cares not about beauty or truth or goodness, um, results in exactly what we, what, you know, what the novel results in. Hmm. Josh. I think that there's a, a point where Victor says that the first monster, he creates the first monster with an eye towards, uh, towards beauty though. He says, uh, you know, he has long lustrous black hair and, and he's got these bright, pearly white teeth. And, and he says something like, I chose the features that I thought would be beautiful. And then there's, there's this, after he says that, I could find it here in a second. I, I chose features I, that were beautiful. Beauty, good God, I couldn't realize how ugly it was while I was making it. I didn't realize how ugly it was until it came to life. And, and I think that there's, there's something kind of instructive there um, because, uh, you know, while, while the, the process of pregnancy entails a lot of suffering for a woman over the first several months, um, you know, months seven, eight, and nine are filled with this anticipation of, you know, meeting the baby, seeing the baby face to face. And, and we have all of these, uh, you know, images in our mind of what a birth looks like that we've picked up from movies. But before my first child was born, my wife and I took this um, birthing class at a local hospital. And, uh, you know, there's a point where all the As men are does. spoken. Yeah. Where all the, you know, the, the doctors and nurses speak to the men and they're like, you know, just so you know, <laughs> a child fresh from the womb doesn't look anything like it does uh, in a film. And, you know, when it's, when a child is just born, it's covered in all kinds of goop and blood and the child is purple and it's, it's this alien being. And you might love the child because it's your own image and no one ever hated their own flesh, but still a, a newly born child is a bit terrifying. Like you love the child, but it's a little scary too, especially if you're not prepared for the amount of. I think the scientific mess. term you used was goop. Goop, yes. So I, I find that, that Victor's pregnancy runs kind of the same way. That, that, you know, while he's, while the child's in utero, it's like, oh, it's my beautiful baby. I'm working on this baby every night. My baby's going to be so beautiful. And then the baby's born. He's like, ah, it's hideous. And, he, and it's not the beautiful thing that he expected. So I, in my mind, the, the creation of the child runs very predictably along the lines of a pregnancy, which is it's easy to be sentimental about the child when it's in utero and then the child is born and it's a completely different story. Um, and, and of course, Victor can't, Victor can't get over his own revulsion for long enough to develop a relationship with him. He just runs uh, because, he's, because he's shallow. <laughs> he can't see beyond uh, the mm. surface of things. Mm. Okay, we got a couple, time for a couple more. Or you guys got to go. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So Laura says, um, this is related to the movie question, but she says, how does a genius book like Frankenstein become cultural lore that translate into adaptions that run the gamut from I was a teenage Frankenstein to the bride of Frankenstein, which of course I referenced earlier to Abbott and Casella meet Frankenstein to the image of Boris Karlov's square head with uh, <laughs> bolts in his neck. Um, is it that this, you know, there's a mashup of genres within the romantic form? So there's the gothic, there's the horror, there's 
you know, even a science fiction element to it. Is it because we all must ask who is the monster? Is it all of this? Is there something else? So, um, I think what she's asking is why has the story become so universally, <laughs> universally, uh, um, interpreted and, and, and well-known. Karen, do you want to, as someone who's, you know, bringing a new version of this yeah. out into the world, do you yeah. want to comment on this? Yeah. I mean, I mean, so what, I mean, what Mary Shelley wrote was, a well, as she calls it in the subtitle, a modern Prometheus. So she, she takes a myth that's as old as humankind about creation, um, the relationship of the creator and the creation and, the, you know, theodicy, basically the question of whether, you know, a God who exists, humans who suffer is good. Um, those are age old questions. And she writes, she draws on those, she draws on the pagan version, she draws on the Christian version that we find in Paradise Lost, um, which I, by the way, which is based on Genesis, which is true, I'm, I, but they're all, you know, <laughs> retellings of this origin story. And right there in the middle of the modern age, she, she writes the modern version. So she, you know, she, so this work is literally like a bridge between those ancient origin stories and the the ones that we're you know we're still asking these questions um and that's that's the genius of this work and and this and that story that is the probably the biggest question that has faced every single human civil civilization is where did we come from who made us and why are we here um and she answers that question in ways that predict the ways we're continuing to answer them today um let's see here I know I'm kind of jumping. It's a little abrupt when I go on to the next question. I know I apologize. It's the nature of the Q&A episode. Sarah says this, and um, it, I don't know if we need to answer this question, but I think her point is, I don't know if we talked about this but during this scene. She says, I realized this scene was a while ago, but did anyone else see the opposite imagery of the monster's experience in the Arabian's arrival to the DeLacy's home? As in, she arrives cloaked and veiled, an unknown creature. And when she removes her veil, she's beautiful and received with joy immediately taught the language and brought into a family. The monster got to witness what should have happened to him. And then she says, or is that so obvious that it wasn't worth mentioning? Um, I'm going to answer her question. Is that so obvious it wasn't worth mentioning by saying it wasn't so obvious that it wasn't worth mentioning. It's a great point. And also most great points are obvious when you finally think of them. They seem obvious when you finally think of them. So if anybody wants to comment on that, you can, but I wanted to give, you know, I wanted to, you know, read that because I thought it's a great point. Well, it's another connection. It's another connection to the beauty, right? If the monster had been beautiful, if the monster had been attractive to the eye, could would he have been received with more acceptance? Um, Then you know that I, I I think that those kind of two ideas are connected. But I thought that was a great point when I read it. Emily asked a question that she she ties it to our this book to our cultural moment. She says. I keep going back and listening to the monster's final conversation with Walton. It struck me as being so relevant to the current unrest in our society, she says. I think, that, I think what made it stand out to me was the word riot and then Walton's statement, you throw a torch into a pile of buildings and when they are consumed, you sit among the ruins and lament the fall. I don't know how to phrase a question without opening a huge can of worms, and so maybe it's best not to address it on the podcast. But how can the very real mistreatment of the monster be reconciled with his own evil actions? 
Is he a victim of society and thus it's society's responsibility to change before he can be expected to act with virtue? Or is it his responsibility to act virtuously no matter how society treats him? So I think that this was my, I I read the entire novel this time through this lens of what's going on in the public square. This is why I think literature is relevant. Uh, It's not just an academic and it's not just personal. It's, it is relevant to the social sphere in the public world. And, and this is a story that in many ways does serve as an allegory to larger social issues. Did, are, did the dominant group in power uh, create a monster uh, and, then, and then attempt to destroy the very thing that it has created and is responsible for? And and that is a very 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 relevant question in the, in in the public square right now. And you have sides forming that say, yes, it is all Frankenstein's fault. It's all the creator's fault, responsible, and the and the creation is not responsible for anything. And then you have the opposite side, right? People who are claiming, no, it is the creation's responsibility. We know that it's that, that these, this dominant group has created a monster, but it is now not our, it's not our job anymore. Now it's the, the creation's responsibility to fix what they have broken, right? And, and what literature I think does is says, is it possible that there's a, a more nuanced, a more humane approach to this problem that, that the answer is yes to all of it, right? And, um, and so I think that this particular book, I kept thinking about it the whole time I was reading it. I applaud the question. It's a worthwhile, it's an important question. Uh, and, and it gives us, I think, if we've aligned ourselves with one side or the other, the ability to displace that onto a story and look at it from a new perspective and humble ourselves to that. And I think literature is always, always doing that, saying, is inviting us to a more nuanced and humble perspective um, by then displacing those, you know, representations onto the story. Um, so I, I really liked this, this point and I think it's true and very relevant. Karen, do you want to, do you want to add on to what she's saying there? I, I think that was, I think is a brilliant question and Heidi's answer is exactly what, uh, what I would say. So I, I can't add to that. Josh, do you want to, Touch on it too. Um, I would. I, I like the question a lot. Um, I would be loath to read any classic work as anything other than a call to personal virtue, though. Um, and I, I don't. I would not uh, approve of a reading of Frankenstein. Um, that boiled down the whole point of the novel to society needs to change. Um, I, I generally don't like the idea that society needs to change. Um, I, I think preaching social change is just too easy, and I think it, it often shirks personal responsibility. Um, so I, I acknowledge that there is... Um, certainly a number of connections that we could draw between the plot of the, the plot of the novel and, and recent headlines. But I would continue to teach this novel 
um, as a call to personal responsibility, personal holiness, chastity, um, and and to be a bit slow to read it as a kind of critique of things outside of yourself. Uh, I don't want to use this novel um, for political leverage, I guess. This is a novel about your need, my need, um, to to humbly serve God and, and other people, not about society's need to change or society's need to reform itself along the lines that, um, that I approve of. Well, I mean, I, I think that the novel is Mary Shelley's critique of the romantic worldview that she was living in. Um, and so even though it's also about personal virtue, I think that she was interrogating, um, that worldview, um, which was her social world. So, I mean, I think it's, it can be both and, I guess is what I'm, I I'm happy say. to sit back and let the two of you just talk about this for the next <laughs> 10 minutes, if you want. <laughs> well, I think we, we've talked all along about, about the critique of, of romanticism that to me, that this is what makes the novel so great is that Mary Shelley reflects, this is, this is the key prose work in the romantic period, unless you want to include Wordsworth's preference to, to the lyrical ballads, but that's that's just that's not fiction. Um, so this is a key work of romantic literature, and yet it is the work that most questions romanticism, um, and that's its brilliance. So uh, and it's not and it's it's social, philosophical, theological, personal implications, all of those. So well, and to add to that, I also I actually agree with Josh. I think that the point you're making is really valid. That that it's you can't displace your personal responsibility onto a social claim, right? And say, it's not my responsibility to be virtuous and humble. It's the world's responsibility to fix some kind of systemic injustice. And then I can maybe be, you know, that's the same claim that the monster makes. If you are virtuous and I will be happy, right? So I think that but I also, I also do think that part of being a virtuous person is being consistent across uh, the, the ethical questions that we encounter. And I think mm -hmm. it's inconsistent to say, I'm a compassionate, humble person personally, but when I look out into the, into the social into the public square, then I'm going to align myself ideologically with one claim and ignore the righteous claims of, an, of, of the other, right? And I think that one of the things that this novel invites us to do is to stop looking at the other as with some capital O other and to say, how can we encounter any creature with humility and compassion and consider their claims and listen to their story? And that is something that exists in the public sphere, sphere as well as the private. Let's do these last two questions because we're running, we're running long here. And I know you guys have lives to live, things to create and so forth. Um, Dawn says, um, she said, I'd never read Frankenstein before now. I'd had a sense that the monster is innocence lost and his story, uh, his story about his, his education comes from a sense of wonder, which then becomes twisted by his closer inspection of mankind. Is that what Shelley is saying? That there's hope for good in a child until someone corrupts it. <laughs> and then she says, non-literary, I'm a non-literary person. Um, is there any of that in this book? You think that once there's a closer inspection of humankind, you know, 
that that hope turn is is corrupted. Josh, go ahead. Oh, unless never mind. <laughs> Karen, Josh just left. Oh, okay. Uh, no, the whole uh, this is actually one of the themes I identify is the question of nature versus nurture, uh, which is strong in this novel. But it, mm-hmm. and it, to situate that more precisely. Um, a great view among the romantics was the idea of um, of the blank slate. You know that, that people are born innocent, without a sin nature, and it's civilization that corrupts us. Um, that's the romantic sort of uh, template. But again, I think this novel questions that and and gives us evidence for kind of to examine both of those. Where does nature end and nurture begin? Um, and so I think, I think Shelley complicates that and does not accept the romantic view, um, at face value that it's civilization that only that corrupts. Although that's, you know, although we see that here. Mm. Josh, did you want to add something? Well, I guess you don't know what she said. (laughs) 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 So you can't add something, but did you want to respond to the question? No, thank you though. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay here's the last well Heidi did you want to respond to that too no thank you though no that, okay. that is well said agreed okay, okay. Um, let's do this last question um, this is from Micah he says I just reread Frankenstein a few months back as part of rereading all her works one thing I would like to explore is the ending so Frankenstein warns the narrator not to let the monster deceive him if he ever meets him after Frankenstein's death the narrator wants to kill him but the monster promises to do the deed himself by burning himself in the frozen north where there is unlikely to be any fire fuel. So he says, is this, if it, 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 he says, I was curious if anyone else thought the monster pulled a final deception here. Josh, what do you think about that? Um, it's certainly a, a great point that there's not going to be a lot of kindling and wood up at the North Pole. Maybe the monster has a, a similarly faulty notion of what the North Pole is like, uh, just like Robert Walton. Um, or maybe it is an abominable snowman story. Right. I, I think that the monster goes off to take his own life. I think the, that that's set up in uh, the reference to the sorrows of young Werther that we get earlier. I think that um, suicide's a sort of a sort of inevitable conclusion. Um, based on the monster's premises that the whole world has turned against him and that he's turned against the whole world. Um, that, that suicide is, for one who believes that the whole world is turned against you and that, and that you owe the world um, a similar response. I think suicide is a decision that, that kind of falls sadly, but, but inevitably from those conclusions. So I don't think that the monster's off somewhere um, still alive having deceived Robert Walton. I, I think that he does follow through on his on his sad threat there at the end. Karen, Heidi, do you agree, disagree? Don't care? I no, I, I actually agree with, with Josh here. Yay. Um but I do want to <laughs> say that I, I retweeted yesterday um a lot of people don't know that the actual ending of Frankenstein is not included in all the editions. Um so you can check my Twitter feed to see that the that the way it really ends that is sometimes omitted is with the monster de- upon departing saying, it's okay if you call me Frankenstein instead of Frankenstein's monster. His final instructions <laughs> is a joke. <laughs> You'd have to see it because, I've, you know, it's just like, where did that come from that everyone calls the monster Frankenstein? And it's really, anyway, sorry. It, it doesn't translate as well in words, but 
check my Twitter feed. It's a meme where someone writes in the final, the final words. That's so great. <laughs> That's, uh, that is good. That is a good point though. I mean, even like, it's, Oh, I'm getting. Oh, <laughs> oh God, thanks, Josh. I thought it fell really, fell really flat. You have to see it. It's a photo. You have to. It just see took it. a second. It just <laughs> took a second. All good jokes take a second. Um, this is this is the theory that my eight year old lives by. All good jokes take a second. Right. And if it's funny the first um, time, it's funny every time. That's all. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you're talking. To... I'll post it in the group. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. It's interesting, Josh, the, the suicide thing you were talking about because we've been reading over on the Patreon for, for our Patreon supporters, we've been reading Crime and Punishment and we just got right at the end, right before the epilogue. And of course, that section is this comparison between uh, Svidgailov, who we're affectionately calling Svidi because saying Russian names is very hard. Um, and then Dostoevsky and Svidgailov takes his own life and um, Raskolnikov, did I say Dostoevsky? Raskolnikov he he doesn't and and there's this the book seems to be asking all these questions about which one of them is you know more 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 cowardly um so it's just it was interesting reading the end of frankenstein and the end of crime and punishment at the same time and i said this on that show but reading crime and punishment and reading frankenstein at the same time makes for quite a um much like Frankenstein and Heart of Darkness would make for a double feature, right. Frankenstein and Crime and Punishment makes for quite a double feature as well. So that that your comments on suicide made me think of Svidgailov's suicide at the end of Crime and Punishment as well. Uh, you know, that's that's all I've got to say about that. It's just, you know, I made a connection. <laughs> right. Our inner, our minds are full of darkness these days doing yeah. both of these books. <laughs> so we are now going to move on to the bright, airy book, uh, The Sun Also Rises, which has no darkness at all in it. Um, any, any final thoughts? We've, we're an hour and 45 minutes almost on this episode. Um, so people who are still here, thank you for, you know, enduring. Um, but Josh, I'll ask you first, any final thoughts on Frankenstein, anything that we didn't cover that you feel like you want to talk about or um, any, just anything you want to say about, about this book? I think um, the best companion piece to Frankenstein is Oedipus Rex. So if, if there's any piece of literature out there that you're going to read alongside Frankenstein, I think that Oedipus Rex is, is the real first horror story. I think that all great horror is a retelling of Oedipus Rex. Um, and in past years and in, in my classes, when I've had a few spare days, I race through Oedipus Rex after Frankenstein. And uh, we look at the parallels between them and, and really between Oedipus Rex and all horror stories, maybe even all modern stories. So Oedipus Rex is a short read. Um, it'll take you an hour at most. Um, and it, if you want to follow up, or if you want to dig deeper, I guess, if, if having encountered Frankenstein, you want to go further back and see what, what the kind of mythic origins of, of Frankenstein are, um, you could read Prometheus, but I, I actually think it's Oedipus Rex that, that sets it all up. Hmm. Uh, Heidi, what about you? Final thoughts? Anything you want to add? Um, I think I've, I, I have really, 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 really enjoyed this conversation. Um, and I, I think one of the things that I really love about this novel, it is a little bit overwrought. It has some flaws in it. It's the first attempt. We read the early version, all those, all those things, but it has these layers of complexity and, uh, 
in interpretive ambivalence, meaning that if you have read the novel, for our listeners who read the novel and feel like they read something different than we read, I th- what you're encountering is the brilliance of this novel, not your inability to read it. That or there ours. is could be our inability or our to inability it. to read it. And like <laughs> I'm sure I'm reading this novel wrong in a lot of ways, and and I think that's the one of the beauties of reading in community. I know this is a huge mantra that I I say in every single series that when you read in community, <laughs> the thing that you encounter is how you read it differently than other people, and and how you encounter it differently because as we've pointed out even earlier in this episode, we bring ourselves to the novel, and and that is what makes reading fun, uh, and so if you've read this and you are full of excitement that your thoughts are different than us, that's really great. But if you read it and you feel like maybe I'm reading it wrong, you're not reading it wrong. This is a very complex novel and there's a lot of layers in it. And that's what we've been bringing out in the podcast. Um, not not necessarily claiming we're right about everything, but but bringing those, those nuances out. Um, and so... Anyway, I've really enjoyed the conversation with y'all and seeing uh, all of the the comments on the Facebook page. Mm. Karen, your final thoughts. Yeah, those are both uh, two great suggestions. I guess I'll just offer um, the simple one that um, this is a a novel that um, is exemplary in showing us how classic literature is infinitely rereadable. So if you're reading this for the first time, then you know, put away a thought in your mind that, you know, you will return to this um, novel someday and read it again. Or if you read it a long time ago and are just listening to this and didn't bother to reread it, think about reading it again. Um, This is a book that reveals so many more things with rereading and also reveals more things as you read it at different times and stages in your life, um, which is true of all great classic literature. And when you reread it, there there might be an addition that that you might want to. That's, that you that's might true. Check if you out. wait until next spring, uh, it would be a perfect time to reread it. Yeah. <laughs> when, so, do you know when yet in the spring that's coming out, or when pre-orders? Are uh, I think it, it'll be the same as the la- the ones this year. So March, I think March third they came out. So somewhere early March, um, this edition should be coming out with Jane Eyre. Okay. All right. So here is my final question for you, Karen, on this Q and A episode. We did the eighteen eighteen edition in part because. You wanted to do it as you're preparing for <laughs> yes, for this yeah. this edition you're doing. Um, are you regretting choosing the eighteen eighteen edition for your edition, or do you wish, or have you already switched to eighteen thirty one? I'm curious to know. If oh no, no, I'm sticking with the eighteen eighteen. Um, and I mean, I think both are both. It's very hard to choose, and basically, I chose eighteen eighteen because that one is less widely available. Okay. So that's why I chose. Yeah, it. yeah, that you know, sense. so that it can meet. But um. But no, I'm very. It, it's been great for me to dig into that one um, through this summer and through writing this. So I'm happy. Well, again, truly, thank you to Josh and Karen. Thank you so much for being here, and hopefully, we can have you back for another series sometime. This is this is really fun. Um, I like that. If um, if you want to, um, if people have questions for you or to get in touch, what's the best way? Is there a just? Josh, as we've covered earlier, you're not on Facebook. How should people get in touch if they want to learn more about your your work, your teaching, if they have questions or anything like that? Is there a good place? Yeah, um, gibbsclassical.com. My website has a contact feature and um, you could send me any questions that you have there. Cool. And Karen, is social media best for you? or you know? Best for me, yep. <laughs> okay, sounds good. 
Um, and uh, just a reminder, as I, as I alluded to a minute ago, next week, uh, Tim will be back and we're going to be starting in on a couple weeks on Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises, which is uh, going to be a different experience than Frankenstein, but strangely, I've discovered covers some of the same themes, which I don't know why I said that's strange. It's called classic literature for a reason. With that, I guess, I guess that's all. So again, thanks, Josh. Thanks, Karen. Thanks, Heidi. This has been a great time. For Heidi White, for Joshua Gibson, for Karen Swallow Pryor, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.